Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means, if you're a longtime listener to the show, that the Hillsdale Dialogue has begun. And for some of you, it's the only hour of the radio week that you listen to, and now the only hour of the television week you watch. That's Dr. Larry Arn on the right, if you're watching on the Salem News Channel, and he's the only other voice you hear besides mine on the radio. And we are at the 13th episode of 13 on the history of the English-speaking people. And I want to begin by asking you, Dr. Arn, what did you appreciate or learn that you didn't appreciate or know about Churchill rereading the history of the English-speaking people after all these years of studying Churchill? Uh, well, I, uh, yeah, what? Well, it's a better book than I remember it being. Um, and I found a value in it that uh, I may have overlooked at various times. Uh, Churchill is telling a story of the growth of uh, the consolidation and growth of his country. And he's commenting with keen eyes on statesmen's actions. And he's very good at explaining them, very good at seeing the situation they're in. It's, it's amazing to me, it has been for decades now, how charitable Churchill is when he comments on people. Because he knows the difficulty of it. And it's hard to... to uh, you know, you're, it's it's only what you know right now, and that never includes all of the important things. And so, he teaches you how to study politics. He teaches you how to read the newspaper. You know, when you read the newspaper in the morning, uh, you you don't know what's going to happen today. And and the, the the and and it is true, by the way, that. Uh, when we talked about all that mess in the Congress, we said over and over, we don't really know what's going on. And the interesting thing is, neither do they. And the interesting, <laughs> what, I, what I learned from this is that history, just the pressure, the weight of history keeps condensing and compressing until only the diamonds remain. And he writes only about the diamonds. And so much of what we obsess over is fleeting. But for example, we're about to talk about Ireland. That is a defining problem for Great Britain and defined much of the, the history of the English-speaking people. But we also are watching emerge the party system. And since we are in the middle of the mess in Congress, and that won't be over for two years, it's going to keep coming back. This is the era when the party system arrives, and Disraeli loves it. He welcomes it. Uh, he said, no man who rises by party should ever condemn party, and Gladstone hates it. He wants great men to rule everything without much argument. Who had the better argument there? Are, are you glad that parties emerged, Dr. Arn? The framers weren't so thrilled with parties, were they? Yeah, they, they hated them. And then the minute the government went into operation, they formed them. They formed. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and they fought like cats and dogs. Uh, so, yeah, the utility of parties is this. 
I mean, our country right now is in a god-awful mess. You know, it's one of the worst in history. But how are we going to fix it? Well, there are steps you have to go through. One is you have to figure out how to fix it. And that that can't be done by everybody at once. That's done by people in smaller groups proposing solutions and seeing what flies. And so that's what parties do. They're a part of the whole. And then they try to get mastery by finding the solution. And they and you know that's what's going on in our Congress right now. That's what's going on in our country. And I you know by the way I I am not despairing because it would be a sin and wrong. But also, I see a lot of uh, progress here. For one thing, I've been going on about the administrative state, my friends and I, for, you know, as long as I've known you, and that's, you know... 40 years. Paleolithic era. But everybody's talking about that now. And, And that's because it's obvious, right? It has been revealed that the FBI is telling media companies what to print, right? That's as bad as it gets. I mean, I guess it's not. They could pick people up off the streets and shoot them. Yeah, we don't have a Gestapo. Uh, That's good. We don't have a Gestapo yet, but we do have... uh, I think it's an ongoing violation of the First Amendment to have 80 FBI agents telling Twitter what needs to be censored. And I'll stand by that position all the time. Yeah, they can't do that, right? You just, there's, and and the reason is, for us to govern ourselves and give our consent, we have to be allowed to talk. And if they decide what one can say and not, then you can't talk. And remember, these things, uh, these are very politically sensitive things. They, the things that are being censored have to do with who wins and loses in elections, and so, yeah, it goes that, to that, page 300, what Churchill writes about parties. Two things were required of the new party system. A party policy which would persuade electors to vote and an efficient organization to make sure they did so. That has never changed, but the Bureau was interfering with the ability to persuade people to get out and vote. Not yet with the party apparatus that we know, but if you interfere with the conversation, you interfere with the persuasion. That's right. That's right. And that, and just remember, those people are carrying guns. And uh, it makes me glad everybody else is, too. Uh, they, <laughs> they, they, that's a very bad thing. And, and uh, so we need to debate that thing. And this fight in the Congress is about how well we're going to be able to debate that in the House of Representatives, which is one part of the puzzle, but it is a part. Do you think at at the beginning of the, we're going to come back to the Irish Home Rule in a moment after we talk briefly about American Reconstruction, but at the beginning of what Gladstone said about, Gladstone changed his mind and decided Ireland had to rule itself and he split his party. Do you think he had any idea he was splitting his party when he did that? Or did he get so deep into the hole that he just had to go forward with it? Uh, Both. it, you know, I mean, uh, it was a big split, right? Uh, Joe Chamberlain, it's interesting, uh, the number of liberals who joined the Tories over that split is about the same number as who joined the conservatives 
led by Winston Churchill in 1924 over the pact with the uh, socialists. The liberals made their first pact with the socialists, second actually. And so, yeah, in other words, some deep set of feelings was touched and they and they left and they broke him, you know. And that was all worked out. You remember when we were reading the, the part about the reign of Queen Anne and how Queen Anne uh, transferred her affections from the wife of the Duke of Marlborough to another lady. Yep. And that, that another la- the other lady was brought to the Queen's attention by Harley, a great politician, who figured out, I need to get her a new friend. And, and uh, you know, things like that are going on now. Uh, and and uh, if if uh, uh, what if you know these uh, what I like about this situation is uh, almost nothing but one thing we are talking about the right things more commonly than we used to and at least uh, in the Republican Party and on the right and you know the 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 engines of public opinion are unaffected by that. You know that what confounds a- me, Doctor Arn, is that Leader McConnell, who has now become the longest-serving leader of a party in the United States Senate, which is no small accomplishment, right? That means you've been there a long time and you are good at your job. I get more calls hating on McConnell, who I think is a genius. Than anything else, you have one minute to the break. What what do you put that down to? That he has the long view and everyone has short views, or what? Well, he's in the legislature. <laughs> that's, that's what the problem is, and the executive branch has the same problem in a different form. In the executive branch, you get to do things, right, and you're responsible for them, and that means there'll be more things tomorrow. In the legislative branch, he's herding cats. He's very good at it. He's the best at it. Uh, but, and was he right? You know, it's we're, we're, we conservatives are all outraged about that big spending bill. And I hate the thing too, except I like the defense part of it. we'll, We'll be right back with more on Mitch McConnell and the American reconstruction, because that's actually what's next in the history of the English speaking people. On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. The confusion is all around us now. I protest about education today, that uh, the debate, almost the entire debate, it's about what we do to the kids to get them the way we want. They think uh, when they talk about outcomes... Ultimately, what they mean is, is it the kind of person we want to make? And the we want is crucial. So I fear that and think that that way of thinking makes us prey to the worst forms of the artificial intelligence outcomes. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio and subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu. 
Welcome back, America. Winston Churchill saw American Reconstruction as a failure, but he also saw it as a passing failure. He saw Rockefeller and Carnegie and Morgan and Vanderbilt and Harriman as great figures. I mean, he passes over 50 years in America in about 25 pages, Dr. Arn, and he's just impressed with how avaricious everybody is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was in uh, Canada with his son one time. And, uh, you know, they have some pomp up there more than in America, titles and stuff. And uh, he said, uh, and his son made some comment that there's civilization in Canada. And uh, Churchill replied, civilization is the scum floating on the deep river of production. Ah, (laughs) ah, that's not in the book, but that is in the book. It's at, at length because that's what he attributes American greatness to. Yeah, in other words... See, it, America is supposed to be messy, and it is messy. And uh, we're trying to solve it by making so many rules. I mean, thousands of pages a week of rules are made in America. There's rules about everything. And the point is, you don't need any rules. You need to set up a fair system, lightly governed, with a very strong national defense, where if people hurt each other, they can be punished, but otherwise let them pursue their own ends. The laws of nuisance were all the zoning we needed. I I tell my con law students that all of this is nonsense. The nuisance laws were all you needed. You cannot build a pig farm next to a building, next to a church under the common law. But if you bring the church to the pig farm, shut up, because you brought the the church to the pig farm. Dr. Arnold, I want to ask you very quickly, Why? Because he goes very quickly over the fact that we won the Spanish-American War very quickly, Churchill says. And then we took Hawaii, Samoa and Wake Island and the Philippines. And we we didn't really want any of it. We kept Hawaii. Why were the British people so in love with it, imperialism, and the American people so resistant to it? Uh, All men are created equal and endowed by their to secure these rights. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That has become, the creed did become, in Winston Churchill's lifetime and somewhat before, of Great Britain. But that's the heart of the matter here. And so, you know, I mean, and we do, you know, British, the British have done, you know, their country, right? They've done some incredibly stupid things. So have we. Uh, we're going to have democracy in Afghanistan. Great idea, right? And the, and the trouble with democracy, it's the same thing in Reconstruction. Um, if people don't want it, they can't have it. And you can't give it to them. You can't make them do it, not for a minute. And and uh, so that's, you know, that that's where all that, it, uh, where an emperor, America is an, a perfect, uh, imperfect people with perfect principles. And therefore, we never fully live up to them. And Reconstruction was a mess, uh, of course. And, you know, Robert E. Lee didn't play a good part, and and uh, Grant did, but those weren't the causes. The causes yeah. were... Churchill lingers over the devastation in the South. Uh, far more than I, I remembered. He just he lingered over. There was nothing left of the South when Sherman was done with it, and that's an oh, yeah. awful place to begin from. That's your home. That's your home country. 
That's Arkansas. That, there's just nothing left in the South. And Churchill lingers over the fact that that's a tough place to come back from. And we did. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of beautiful stories from the tragedy of the Civil War. And one of them is the great Joshua Chamberlain is selected to accept the Southern surrender at Appomattox. And, uh, you know, he won the Congressional Medal of Honor and he was a, read the Killer Angels, find out what a great man he was. Well, he uh, accepted the sword of the Southern officer and said, at last and now you can go home to your farms and your homes. And the man, the Southern officer replied, we have no farms. You've burned them. And uh, Chamberlain replies, you know, I was afraid somebody was going to get hurt when we came down here. And then both lines, north and south, collapsed in laughter. <laughs> yeah, I've been to his house on Bowdoin College. He's a great American and a, a, uh, someone we should linger over. But when we come back, we're going to talk about Ireland, because it is the great, great dilemma of the United Kingdom that Ireland is a part of it and cannot be not a part of it, at least in history. And Churchill struggled with that. And we'll talk about Gladstone and Randolph Churchill and Tory democracy and all of that. We return. Don't go anywhere. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. Welcome back, America. Dr. Larry Arn and I are on the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu, and all of the Hillsdale Dialogues getting close to 500 of them, are found at hueforhillsdale.com or at iTunes by typing in Google just Hillsdale Dialogue, and they'll come up to you on iTunes. Uh, when I read this part, Dr. Arn, I was struck by Captain Boycott and Captain Moonlight, by names that we know only because of the Troubles, because of Ireland. I just, I'm just going to give you the floor. Would you explain Ireland and England to people in a, in a nonpartisan way? Because... Uh, you get to talking with the Irish or the English about Ireland, and boy, people separate quickly. Well, uh, it's it, the whole thing is uh, a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, uh, the Irish are an insular and stubborn people, also charming and musical and poetic. Uh, and the English, they're bigger, and they... They were, they became a world power. Now, uh, England's problem was that, you know, as England was becoming a world power, was that the continental powers were always mucking around uh, on the British Isles, Scotland and Ireland especially, sometimes Wales. And those are discrete parts of Great Britain. And so... The English feared the Irish making a consortium with the French, which they did sometimes. For hundreds of years. Oh, yeah. And so so uh, England wants to stop that. Now, Cromwell was a very firm man, and he went over there and laid waste to the place. And they don't forget that. And so uh, the, the troubles you know, which go on into the 2000s. Uh, that's, now, you have to, to understand the more recent Irish history, you have to understand British Irish history, you have to understand the difference between Northern Ireland, Ireland, 
proper. Northern Ireland is Protestant, and Ireland proper is Catholic. And England is Protestant, right? And so the Northern Irish people have been very wedded to England, and they don't want to be separated from England. And so England felt a duty to protect them, still feels it, fighting with the EU about this very day. Uh, and and that doesn't make the Southern Irish happy. So uh, you just see there's just these friction points. And, and, and the Scotch-Irish are a, I am Scotch-Irish, so I can say this, my people left Sainfield in Ulster in 1868 because they you know, younger sons got out of the country. They would fight for England. And they would, so would the Southern Irish, would fight for England in world wars and in Napoleonic wars. But they are fighters. They are combative. James Webb wrote the book about that. The Irish, Scots-Irish came to the United States and settled in the mid-Atlantic. And they proceeded to become the army class in America. And they still are, to a large extent. The descendants of those people are warriors. Yeah. The, uh, if you read the Tom Wolfe novels, the Irish are the cops in New York City, in Boston. And uh, wouldn't wouldn't have any law and order without them. Yeah. So the point is, those Britain. It's interesting. Uh, America's got its huge divisions in its history and now, and it's better at reconciling those than any country has ever been because of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Britain has also been very good at, at reconciling them, but Lord, in that little place. There's not much space, you know. Uh, people used to say, Arkansas in Britain, Arkansas, what state is that in? And I would say it's a little bitty state on its own. It's hardly any bigger than Great Britain. <laughs> <laughs> but the, from, from an island nation, from the Sceptred Isle comes much. Eventually, they divide Ireland. And Churchill plays a role in that. What's his role in that? That's not in the book. I just want people to know that the man who's writing the story is the man who tried to solve the problem. Well, he 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 made a, there's a great man named Michael Collins, and he was you know a big a big figure in the Irish Republican Army, and a warrior, and a poet, and Churchill made a deal with him, uh, and in the deal, and Churchill had been in charge of suppressing the violence in Ireland. And he used some people to call the black and tans. They were certain military dress. And they were, you know, there's still resentment about that. Back oh, in, yeah. From back in those days. And, but Churchill is the one who, with, with Michael Collins, made the peace. And uh, uh, Collins said to Churchill, uh, when they shook hands on the deal, which later got put into a treaty, this is my death warrant. And sure enough, it was. It was. And and people need to remember, Ireland was not with the Allies in World War II. So deep was the animosities of hundreds of years of bitterness that come time to face Hitler, Churchill could not rely on Ireland for its ports. That, yeah. That's and astonishing. That, and German submarines did refuel in Irish ports. So yeah, that's that. and see, yeah, that's what they were worried about. And uh, Eamon de Valera is the man there, and much admired, very, by the way, by my in-laws. My my son's mother-in-law is Irish-born, 
and a huge fan of that man. Uh, and I, I just don't talk much about Ireland because you get, I don't want to get in any fights with anybody. But I, you can you can start a ball in a a brawl in a pub in about five minutes if you say the wrong thing to the uh, to the Irish about the English. Yeah, uh, and, and then your your great grandson will still be having that fight. <laughs> yeah. So let's quickly go down to South Africa, which got worked out. Uh, we are getting close to World War One when the Boer War breaks out. Churchill's a figure in that. He's a he's a participant in it, and. He likes imperialists. He, he admires evil and bearing, and we'll talk about him next week when we do the River War. And he admires a lot of the South. He does not think much of Kruger, though, does he? No. And uh, so the the thing, the Boer War was there were a bunch of Dutch settlers, and they'd been there for a long time, at least, in fact, longer than the British. And they, and you know, they were there for three hundred years. And the British come along and they start, you know, they're a great naval power. They can go anywhere. The Dutch were at the time that they first went to South Africa. And and uh, they start to get dominance. And then there was a war breaks out because the Boers don't like the British. Now, uh, and vice versa, probably. And the British want the gold or at least, um, who's the great imperialist, uh, Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes wants all the gold, right? He wants everything. Yeah, and see, he's Cecil Rhodes. That's a, he's an interesting man, Cecil Rhodes. And, and uh, But he, uh, here's what Churchill says the fight is about. It's uh, not in the Inkspring Peoples. It's in a book he wrote about the Boer War called uh, London to Ladysmith via Pretoria. That's a, a, a military maneuver he was part of. Uh, what he said, he, he, t- he reports a conversation around a campfire with some Dutch guys, bowlers, and he says, uh, yeah, he says, uh, the bowler says, what this is about is the equality of the Kaffir. That's the mixed race person in in South Africa. The tribal people, not of mixed race, uh, Britain kept sovereignty over them for after the Boer War settlement because um, uh, they didn't trust the South Africans to take care of it. Um, and and uh, oh look, you fixed the, the picture. Um, and uh, uh, so Churchill says that this is what this is about. It, begun, it, begun, it goes beyond the political and the economic to the social. The, the Boers will not admit the equality of the Kaffir. Yep. Yep. And that's, that's what he thought the fight was about. Uh, he, he becomes and, a, a hero in this war. If not for the Boer War, does Churchill become Churchill? Oh, yeah. But uh, this happened to be the occasion of it. Uh, he was, uh, he, he was, uh, you know, he was, uh, you can't, you can't, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this more when we do the River War, but it's very hard to overestimate the energy and dash of the young Winston Churchill. Oh, my God. So, You've got me reading The River War for next week, and we're going to spend two weeks on that. It's also hard to overestimate his ability to write. Uh, how old was oh, he yeah. when he wrote The River War? 
Uh, he was 38. 28. 28. Isn't that yeah. something? Yeah. Between, uh, this is almost right, between 26 and 29, Churchill fought in four wars. He wrote three best-selling books about them, plus a novel, and then he got elected to Parliament. <laughs> You know, I, I, I get uh, there. There are ways to read the River War. One is because it, that no one's written about it that I've ever read with such panache. It's always kind of dry, and it's anything but dry. Very sympathetic to the Mahdi, by the way, and the dervishes. Very sympathetic. He understands them. But the second way to read it is this is the future savior of the West at the age of twenty-eight, writing in sweeping moral judgment of everything around him, about what makes for leaders and greatness, what makes for evil and, and ambition, what is overreaching. I mean, he's, he's rendering moral judgments of the sort that you would shoot down in a classroom tomorrow. Can we, uh, can we show a picture on this stupid Skype thing we're doing? Uh, you're, we? you're, 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 not, not on this week. Uh, if you send no. it to us, we can use it next week. What's it a yeah. picture of? My favorite picture of Winston Churchill is him standing in Pretoria Station in the middle of the capital of South Africa. Oh. And he's been captured. And he's been marched for hours in the rain and then put on a train overnight. And he arrives there. And there's this bedraggled bunch of officers. And they've got their heads down. And they're almost all but one of them. And then off to the side... There's Winston Churchill. And he's beaming. And, and they're surrounded by the burghers of Pretoria. Must have been a demoralizing situation, I, right? Wait one second. We're going to come back to this. Don't go anywhere, America. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English, Justin Jackson, picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in the Exodus story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash new course. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E. Hillsdale.edu slash new course. So what is the young Churchill doing in Pretoria when he's been captured, surrounded by the burghers, Larry Arn? He's looking at the people gaping at these prisoners with complete indifference. You'll see the picture. It's amazing. And it's different than anybody else in the picture. And then what we know about that is uh, he, he, was, he, he was a journalist, right? He kept... Uh, uh, they made a rule that you couldn't write articles for the paper if you were a serving officer because Winston Churchill was the most famous war correspondent in the country. 
He gave the identity to two wars because he wrote so well about it in the in the papers and then his books were bestsellers. And so what he would then do is resign his commission and write a bunch of articles and join back up. And uh, and he gets on this armored train. It's a very stupid thing. And and he didn't even want to get on it. There's a guy named Haldane, Dane, who knew him, who'd seen him in battle, see. And Winston Churchill in a battle was an impressive thing. Um, and come with me. Let's go, you know. And, the, you know, the track doesn't go in a circle. It goes out to this town, and then there's only one way back. <laughs> and, so, and so the Boers, they're not Even I understand the problem there. <laughs> And so they pile up rocks on the track and they derail the train and they bring the train under fire. And Churchill gets out and fixes it. He's not a, he's not a soldier and and he gets the train free. And then he's the idea is that they're going to the soldiers are going to run along they the only part they get free is the locomotive and the car immediately behind it. And they're going to take the wounded and the soldiers are going to run along beside but they can't, they have to go uphill, and so the train gets going too fast, they get left behind, and then the British soldiers are being captured, and Churchill jumps off and joins them. So now he's captured. Uh, he, uh, he, you know, as I said, he's marched through the rain, he's overnight with guns pointing at him, and he gets out of that station. By the time he gets there, he's befriended his guards, and he's found out the entire lay of the land in Pretoria. Uh -huh. And he knows that they're going to be taken to the state model schools, which is a kind of adolescent prison, the officers. And the uh, enlisted men are imprisoned in the, in the stadium, sports stadium nearby. And so Churchill arrives with a plan to overpower the guards, march on the stadium, liberate the enlisted men, and seize the capital and win the war. And the and the the uh, command com, commandant of the prison, the senior officer, won't approve it. And so Churchill escapes, and it's and and you know his his escape was uh, partly luck and partly art, and he he ended up exhausted and famishing and dying of thirst outside a mining camp. And he decided, there's nothing for it, but I've got to go knock on a door. And he knocks on the one door of about 10 where there are British people living in the house. And they hide him. <laughs> you know, when we do uh, the charge of the Hussars, we'll talk more about Churchill, the officer. But I want to finish the history of the English-speaking people where he does. Lord Salisbury. Now, Andrew Roberts, our friend, has written a magnificent biography. I think it was his first. What did Salisbury, who, who reigned forever. What did he think of young Churchill? Because Lord Randolph Churchill was a burr that Salisbury got rid of. What did he think of young Churchill? Oh, well, he uh, he wasn't around long enough for him to be annoyed with Churchill. Uh, that, that honor was left to his grandson, Arthur Balfour, who became the prime minister not long after Churchill got into the parliament. And Churchill and Balfour became great friends, but not at first. Uh, and see, Churchill writes an essay about Balfour that describes the ways of living in Britain, because Balfour 
was rich and well-born. And he, he, he was not quick to think anything was an emergency. Churchill thought he was a very good man. He, he, the Balfour Declaration is one of the reasons we have the Jewish state. Yes. And, and, uh, and Churchill fought like cats and dogs with him and left the party over free trade in 1904 and became a liberal, which he then was for almost 20 years. But he had big respect for Balfour. And the, the, Marcus, the fifth Marquess of Salisbury was a distant presence to Churchill. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've got to say, when we we pick up the River War next week, I hope people will go out and get their fall, four volume history of the English speaking people. The 13 weeks we have spent on it truly have just scratched the surface, just scratched the surface, because if you want to know why we are here today, you got to start way back in the midst of ancient England and move forward, which is what Churchill and Dr. Arne have done for us. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.